Well, the rulings were basically starting all over again, sending everything back down to the lower courts, and you start all over again. And so, uh, from a certain point, I'm satisfied. From another point, I'm not satisfied. Listen, most Americans don't care about his tax return. They expressed that in 2016 when they elected him to office. You know, it seems like the only people that really care about it are my Democrat colleagues uh, or my previous Democrat colleagues on Capitol Hill because this is the number one issue for them. Uh, when you really look at it, uh, you know, this is a fishing expedition. I'm saying, how can you say you're not going to tell all the schools how to reopen, but you're going to tell them all when to reopen? 47 guidelines issued by the states. Um, there's local uh, guidelines that have been put in place. This can be done safely. It can be done well. And we believe there's a way to safely do this. And the child will always come first in this administration. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Muckrake Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jared Yates Sexton. As always, I'm here with my loyal co-host, Nick Houselman. Uh, we got a jam-packed show today. Um, tons going on. Um, Supreme Court rulings left and right, uh, Eastern Oklahoma being given back to the native people, uh, tax rulings, just you, you name it, we got it. Uh, we'd also like you to stick around. We have a very special guest. I've been excited about this for a while. I'm a big fan of this guy's writing. Uh, Kevin M. Levin, who is a historian and author of Searching for Black Confederates, the Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. I assume you follow him on Twitter, but right now he's writing about the history of Confederate monuments. I don't even know if that's relevant right now, if it's something that we could talk about, Nick, that could, you know, somehow or another say something about our modern times and modern condition. Oh, Jerry, I guarantee they're going to have some monuments up at Trump's next rally. And they'll probably troll us with a couple of Confederate ones as well. So don't that's, be surprised. That's, that's actually a rumor. That's a rumor that this might be the thing, that he might just start showing up. And, and, and that's something. But, but as of today, uh, for those uh, of you who might not have heard at this point, uh, the Supreme Court um, continues to surprise I, I, it, it's, 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 it's an interesting thing that they're doing right now. Uh, he, he has been, Donald Trump has been rolled by the Supreme Court in, in recent weeks. Uh, today ruled seven to two that um, his taxes were, were to be made available uh, in terms of investigations against him, but not made available possibly to Congress which is a hard thing to sort of wrap your head around. There's a lot of maneuvering going on here. Uh, what, what do you make about this, Nick? Everybody wins to some degree today because the taxes, even though they go to, um, to Vance, uh, it, it's not going to be released. We're not going to know much about it. But, and I don't think he's going to be able to get a grand jury uh, and, and, a, and any kind of sentence between now and like uh, you know, November. I did hear um, somebody on MSNBC, uh, Neil Katyal, was trying to say that things have gone really fast in the past, and you never know, but it just it doesn't seem like we're going to find out much about that, and th those things won't leak there. Um, so, you know, that it, the can is kicked to some degree, and then on the other side, uh, with what the uh, Democrats do, I kind of am pissed off about the whole thing and how they've done this. I think, I think it's their fault, the way this has played out, why they didn't get the access to the records now. Well, go go forward. I would love to. I would love to hear about your anger, Nick. This is this is what the people are here for on a Friday. Well, you need a you need a legislative purpose, uh, which is what they've been harping on. It seems to be the one argument that uh, has really taken hold on the Supreme Court, and they should have been doing. They should have subpoenaed these records in the midst of a impeachment trial. This case should have been uh, gone in front of the Supreme Court while the, the impeachment was going on. That would be the legislative purpose because they would have had evidence, especially with Michael Cohen's testimony, that there are some serious issues that uh, indicate that he violated laws. 
And um, they didn't do that, and they didn't bother to try and uh, administer the subpoenas for witnesses during the impeachment either, which is a little bit along the same lines of, well, it just would take too long, we can't do it. And um, it's just frustrating that it feels like a smarter, somebody who could have seen this a little further out would have been able to predict this happening and done it better. Are you, you a fan of the movie The Usual Suspects at all? Do you enjoy I that just, movie? I just just watched it actually. Not long just ago. watched it. Um, one of one of the all time surprise endings. That if you've seen it once or whatever, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spoil it here. That's not what we're here for, right? We're 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 not we're not movie spoilers here. But I will say that there's this moment, a a a, 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 a an awakening, a realization that is like one of the more dramatic revelation moments. And all of a sudden, you start to realize like a genius that has been at play throughout the movie. It's kind of the exact opposite looking at how Trump has been handled. Do you know what I mean? It's just like it's you just see one misstep after another where somebody either profited off of Trump with the media and the way that they treated him or his opponents who underestimated his ability to possibly win the Republican nomination. And then you keep having these steps where it's like, People want to believe that Donald Trump is a secret genius, right? We've talked about this on the podcast. They want to believe that he's playing four-dimensional chess when, in fact, he's choking on one of the pieces. And and it's just this person who just bumbles his way through life. And you would think that competent politicians or a competent opposition would have been able to just nail him dead to rights. And I mean, I mean how many things at this point, Nick? I mean, I, you, would, you would think it's yeah. a lot. And, and it's one of those things where you look at not just the impeachment, but the way everything from the Mueller report to the impeachment to this thing with the taxes to, I mean, I mean, how, how many millions have just been given out to Trump cronies at this point? And maybe we'll hear about that in the future. Maybe we won't. I mean, the man is a walking, talking, living, breathing corruption machine. It's not like he's slick. He's never been slick. I mean, that, those taxes, can you imagine taking a look at Donald Trump's taxes? I mean, it has to be just like the most blatant, like illegal and, and incriminating tax report you'd ever look at. Well, I think we can assume that only because of how ferociously they're defending not releasing them, right? Because we can go into this in a minute about Nixon, who actually did release his taxes because he was convinced, oh, wouldn't it be a big deal? No one's going to, you know, what he did get caught on ended up not being prosecuted, which it probably should have been. But um, I think that there's no other alternative than to assume or then to accept this fact that these things are riddled with all sorts of evidence of money laundering and uh, misvaluations and fraud, basically, of his assets. Uh, here's the thing that frustrates me about the one about the, the Vance case in New York is that I just don't know if anybody really does care about campaign finance violations. This is what he's trying to get him on. And I, I, I don't even know if I would care if I, was a, if I was a Supreme Court justice at this point. Like, why is this coming up to our level to have to mitigate, uh, to adjudicate this kind of a case? That's what's also frustrating about it because, listen, I would be more than happy that he would get exposed for all these terrible taxes and get him out there. But um, I don't know if this is what they're trying to prosecute. The one thing that Trump is really good at and he's very competent at is lawsuits. Although he threatens the lawsuits and never does them. But he also knows that these things take a long time. He can tie everybody up in court way past at least the election. And at this point, all they care about right now is kicking the can to the next election. Then they'll worry about if they can keep him out of prison later. But at this point, it's a win because they can get it past the election. And that's the only thing they had going for them right now. 
Can we talk about the existential thing that just happened and exactly what you said? Because I think you're exactly right. Okay. Why should we care about campaign finance reform, right? This is what we keep trying to talk about on this show. Because you're exactly right. Like, I'm sorry, that doesn't do that doesn't move the meter for me either. And like, I, I, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Donald Trump is a criminal who should not be president of the United States. Do you know why it doesn't move the needle for me? Because we live in a country where we understand that the rule of law doesn't matter. I mean, you know, it, it's there, there's a societal thing that has happened. And, you know, I was actually doing some research um, for, for an article uh, that, that I was working on. And you look at like the 2008 economic collapse, right? And this happens because of not just not just carelessness, but also nefarious accounting and like people who were just like, you know, they're breaking the law left and right. And on, on in the meantime, you have corporations left and right who are breaking one law after another and basically, you know, begging government oversight to do anything, but there's not enough people to do it. We don't, and actually it's funny we're talking about taxes. I don't know if people know this, there are not enough people at the IRS to actually investigate all of the tax fraud in this country. And that's not by accident. That's on purpose because they've been hollowed out. It actually has been done so people like Donald Trump will not get caught cheating on their taxes and corporations cannot. It's been a purposeful hollowing out of, of these, these uh, oversight groups. Well, eventually what ends up happening is you live in a lawless country. You have a guy who can shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and it doesn't matter it really doesn't matter and me and you are sitting here uh, and again we've said this multiple times we're not on a trump apology show like we'll nail him dead to rights every time that we possibly can and and i'm with you i'm like no that's just you know that's like trying to shoot a gun at superman it doesn't work and and it's just a thing where like that lawlessness breeds more and more lawlessness and then you get to the point where you're exactly you're exactly right you watch houdini break out of enough safes you expect Houdini to break out of the safe. So why are we going to put him in another safe, you know? Well, th there's a lot of things to unpack here because we got to talk about the history of this in a second. But first of all, I keep thinking that they would have fraudulently filed their taxes anyway. So if we ever get them, they're sure. just going to be doctored. But a lot of people don't think that's the case. And that also then it, it talks to like the, the sheer, you might say, uh, not incompetence, but like ineffectiveness of the IRS. I don't know about that. I'm not so sure that it's not just a corrupt entity in and of itself. Because they should have caught these things. If he does file his taxes properly, like, or like properly, but like it revealed all the legal things he was doing, they should have been able to catch a lot of these things, and they didn't over all these different years. The New York fucking Times can do an expose and win a Pulitzer exposing all of that, and they couldn't find any of that over the last 50 years of his tax returns? Hard to believe. Well, who helped? Who helped on that expose? Did you hear this? Yes, yes, the, the niece who's releasing the... Mary Trump. Mary. Mary, yeah. Mary Trump had to help the New York Times to explain the scheme because that is the, the imbalance of power in this country is that corporations outpower all of these people. And you're exactly right. There are obviously corrupt people involved in this all the way around. But it's been intentionally imbalanced. I mean, that's one of the reasons why right. somebody like Donald Trump can do what he does and his family did what they did. It's an entire cottage industry. I mean, that's the reason, I'm sorry, but that's the reason why you have so many houses in like the Hamptons. You know, yeah. it's a bunch of people who figured out how to manipulate the system and they move money around for these people. You know, having watched William Barr for these years, is it fair to say that you're concerned about the Justice Department and how on the up and up they really are? Is that, is that fair? I will say this, and, and listen, I'm feeling saucy today, Nick. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to be. I'm going to. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. 
So, you know, we, we talk about these things on this show and we talk about like these moments of corruption. And, you know, sometimes we talk about like the FBI or the CIA. And now we're talking about the Department of Justice. We talk about these institutions, right? And they're, they're, they're at a breaking point, all of them. Have I ever trusted them? No, I haven't. And, and that's the whole thing. It's like Trump is, is a symptom. He's not the disease. William Barr is a symptom and he isn't the disease, but he is very well the disease that might destroy the law, the rule of law in America. So yes, I have, I have, I have that. Okay, so if you feel that way, how, how much do you feel about Steve Mnuchin right now and the Treasury Department? Because in my mind, they're completely running a smokescreen for him as well and battling this like a personal lawyer would for, for Donald Trump, which is insane as well, only because, you know, there is a law that um, uh, the Congressman uh, Richie Neal had, you know, invoked that says they, that he will be compelled to release his taxes to my committee. And they just ignore that. They will, and, and by the way, yeah. that didn't get to the, to the Supreme Court. I don't think that was the argument they were going for when they, the Congress tried to get him uh, to release them. So, uh, but, but he's got a guy in the Department of the Treasury Department now who is, who is completely, um, you know, sullied the reputation of what it's supposed to look like. And by the way, that's just a tipping point. Every one of these cabinet uh, secretaries is as corrupt as possible. And, you know, that's the end of our, of our system here. But let's, let's talk about for a second this notion that it goes unpunished, right? These things have gone unpunished ever since the beginning of our, of our country, right? We've had robber barons and we've had wealthy people just be able to take advantage of the system to no end. In fact, Trump could go on in the middle of a debate in front of everybody and say that I cheated on my taxes. That's why I'm, I'm smart, because I did that. And it, it might, might even be an applause line. But I would guarantee it would be. I guarantee it would be. Well, let's take a trip back in time because I did some research and I looked up uh, the Nixon, uh, you know, stuff. Now, let me just say this. Nixon is, quote unquote, lucky that Watergate happened because he would have been impeached for his taxes. And what happened was is in back in the early 70s. Now, I know we're coming out of the tumultuousness of the 60s. We still had the silent majority and some notion of fairness and some notion of like how the government is supposed to work. The idea that someone would cheat on their taxes back then was enough that would have caused him to be impeached. Believe it or not, I know it might be hard to believe, but that was still a big political no-no for any politician if they got caught doing that. There was still shame. That's the thing. There was yeah. still shame. And actually, real fast before you tell the history of it, I just want to draw this bridge for people. When Nixon was compelled to give up the tapes and the transcripts of, of, of the Watergate scandal... He did it, except for he, like, erased big chunks of them, right? So, like, that was, like, the middle finger in, in everyone's eye. But he still gave them up. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like somebody came in the room with a gun and, like, held a gun on him and made him do it. There was still that give and take. Like, you told us we had to do it. The Supreme Court ruled on this. I guess we have to do it. There's nothing that says that Donald Trump or anyone around him has the shame necessary to make any of this happen or cooperate with any investigation. And it's that loss of shame that actually sets this apart and makes it a little bit more dangerous. But I think right. the line you're drawing is absolutely right. And it's, the founding fathers probably never could envision someone not huh. having shame. I mean, they, they, they probably did in some degrees, but not in this sense where the norms could be violated to the degree where, yes, they would ignore that. But it gets, it gets interesting because Nixon was compelled to give up his taxes as well. 
And he didn't fight that either. In fact, he gave it over the next day. He gave the consent, and then the, the uh, Treasury Department turned him over, just like Richie Neal wants now. And he, as soon as they invoked that clause, boom, they sent him over. So there's been precedent to invoke that clause that, that, that compels anybody in the private citizen to release their taxes. So uh, he, let him, he let him have them. But he knew what was in there, and what was in there was a thing that was going on for years with a whole bunch of presidents where they could, they could donate their presidential papers and write it off as a tax break, as a donation, uh, as, a, uh, as a charitable donation. So it was, they had changed the law, but he was going to try and get just a month or two before the law goes into effect, he's going to get these papers over there in 72. And um, he, you know how much he valued these papers, a thousand pieces of paper for? Before you tell him... <laughs> Before you tell me the number, I just want to say how gross this is. It reminds me of the old stories of, like, Picasso paying for dinner by just scribbling something on a napkin. This is so gross. I I just, this is so gross. Okay, go on. Half a million dollars uh, is what he he, he declared this for. Now, remember, half a million dollars back in then was, it's probably like three, four, five million dollars now. Now, he, he could write that off his taxes. He didn't have to pay taxes. He basically paid about $800 in taxes for those four years. And he had another year coming because all that money can, can continue to, uh, to apply to deductibles for his taxes. Now, this might sound familiar to you, doesn't it? Does it sound at all familiar to anybody we might know now who did almost the same kind of thing? Richard Nixon is such a two-bit criminal. It's just incredible. You know, you, you, oh. you think you know about him, but he's such a two-bit criminal. It gets better. You know that famous, I'm not a crook speech? That line, you know what? He wasn't referring to Watergate. He was referring to this tax thing, this tax scandal. When he said that the United States people need to know the president's not a crook and I'm not a crook, that's what he was talking about. This was before the Watergate thing hit. So they used that quote for Watergate, but it turns out it's actually for the taxes he was talking about. And they, they released it, and he pledged to go, you know what? I will pay back whatever taxes I owe. And that's sort of the default. There's no punishment. The IRS said they were never going to punish him. They were not going to charge him with fraud. They were really nervous about that for some reason. And so they said, he simply said, I'll pay back the money. Now, here's the other question is, he makes about 200000 bucks a year, I think is what he's making. And he was able to write off all those taxes. So all of a sudden, in one shot, he was able to pay half a million dollars. How did that happen? Who covered that money for him, right? That could, oh. couldn't possibly be legal. No one ever followed up on that. And here we are, though, where there was no punishment for that. There was no punishment. I mean, he, I know he had to resign his office, but they didn't prosecute him for the, the crimes he committed. And here we are, direct connections to what happened there and to here. And what makes it worse is that because he wasn't prosecuted, we are now at the point where we're like, eh, who cares? So what if he cheated on, the, on, the, uh, on those uh, campaigns finance laws? So what if he cheated on his taxes? Big deal. Everyone does or whatever. Everyone lies. All politicians lie right from there. And that's why we're here. And if we don't do something now about this and we don't prosecute the fuck out of Trump, then it's oh. gonna, we'll have this every 20 years at least. The, the amount of lawlessness that Trump is going to breed in future presidents is going to be unbelievable. And by the way, it's not going to just be Republicans or Trumpists. I mean, it'll be everybody. Yeah. Because every time that you establish some sort of a precedent, people just run with it, right? I will throw out of here and... and Listen, I, I think you're exactly right linking this thing with Nixon and Trump. But I want to give people just a tiny little tiny shred of hope on this thing. Nixon was a competent politician. Like one of the things that we were talking about before we started recording this is we have to take a look at like the checker speech, right? And for those who aren't familiar with this, everyone always likes to push this myth that Richard Nixon was like, he lost the election because he was terrible on TV. He used TV constantly. He was, a, he was a professional with TV. And one of the first things he had to do was, well, he got caught in a political uh, slush fund 
problem. Which, uh, isn't that weird that he was corrupt from the very beginning and then it turns out he was corrupt later? I don't know. And so then he, like, trots his family out in a dog and does this whole dog and pony show, like, oh, feel sorry for me. First of all, that's Trump doesn't have that. You know what I mean? Like, there's no Donald Trump, like, sitting at home with his family talking about his taxes. He doesn't have that. What I want people to think about is this. Have you have you seen Trump's tweets about the Supreme Court? Yep. Okay. He is just raged and he's like, oh, they're against me, even though, you know, I put two of them on there. And, you know, they, they've never liked me and they're coming after me and this is presidential prosecution. Wasn't he elected to drain the swamp? Am I wrong? Do I Did I misremember that? That sounds familiar. Wasn't he elected completely on the promise that he would fight the deep state? Uh, yes. Narrator's voice. So, so get, let me get this straight. Four years have gone by, and his war against the deep state and his effort to drain the swamp have not birthed any results whatsoever, right? There are some who will tell you, and by the way, this is the reason we talk about QAnon every now and then. This is why something like QAnon exists. It's so they can figure out a way to make him a success, right? They have to create a whole mythology that involves time travel and JFK Jr. still being alive to make him sound like a success. He is a failure at the mythology that he's even created. Like three years and almost four years into this thing, he has failed to even slay the mythical dragons that he made up. So I actually think this hurts him. I think by sitting here and continuing to cry about it, like there's a small base that still hears that and they still believe that thing. But he's a failure by his own mythology. And I think that is um, that's pretty incredible that we have a president who's running on his first term saying, yeah, I just failed at everything. That's incredible. I, I don't think that we've ever seen that. Yeah, uh, as long as people can hear that through what he's saying. Um, I, I just don't know. Remember, he has this thing where he says things three times. And for somehow, psychologically, that makes it true in people's minds. Which is why we, when we hear him speak and we think, oh, no, he's got dementia. He didn't remember. He just said that a second ago. He's probably doing it, you know, this rule of three that he has in his head, aside from the, the positive power of thinking. Um, and so, so that's the question is how many of the people that are fervently believing him are going to be turned? We don't need a lot of them, right? You only need a couple percentage points, but that's well, the, I have a quick question, question. the margins here. Let's go, let's go into the diseased brain. Can we do that for just a second? Cause I love this. So that's let's, that's my life. Let's, let's, let's dive down this rabbit hole. So I, I, I want people to think about this for a second. So when Brett Kavanaugh was nominated for the Supreme Court, and for those who aren't familiar, Brett Kavanaugh voted today that a president has to hand over his tax return. So Brett Kavanaugh is nominated for the Supreme Court and is exposed in public as being a sexual assaulter, right? But if you are part of like the Trumpist cult, why was he called that? It's the deep state, right? They came after him. They went at, They tried to submarine this really honorable man. Well, let's take that mindset further. So that honorable man who the deep state tried to take down now voted 7-2 to two against Trump and its presidential prosecution or presidential persecution. How do you how do you rectify that? What do you do with that? How do you run that through your, your processors? Well, what do you what, do? What he, he went on a, a Twitter thread about Comey and McCabe. That's what he did. He went on the whole thing as well about how, why aren't they being punished? Why are Clinton and Comey and McCabe and, and Strzok and all these people uh, were allowed to spy on me, Obama? I mean, I, I think he literally, he, he, he's still yelling treason to the wind 
And, and again, he knows what that means. You know, when a president's going to accuse treason, you're talking about you know, firing line, right? Um, so he, that's, that's his obvious, you know, subterfuge going on here to try and, you know, change the narrative. I'm sure it'll get worse. Like, he might even do a speech in blackface, Jared, by this point, by the, by the end of this thing. <laughs> I swear you know, I, was, I, I, I streamed a thing uh, last night, and somebody asked a question. They were like, you know, what if what kind of compromise would come out against Donald Trump that would bury him? I don't think there is any. You know, everyone talks about the um, the P tape on The Apprentice, oh. the idea that on The Apprentice he like you know used racial slurs all the time. I think we actually live in an environment right now where if a, a video of him saying a racial slur came out. He wouldn't back down from it and his supporters would be like, there's nothing wrong with this. And like the, the, the cult of them would just start openly using the slur. I really believe that's what would happen to Discord. Well, that's already happening, but, right? We've seen these videos of these white people right. using the N-word. Uh, and it, it's just startling because it, it's so out of place in a way, right, in the world I've created for myself. And it just flows right off the tongue, right at them. In fact, one of the videos I saw, I don't think the people were even black and they were using the N-word at them. And it, it's just... It's uh, it's still alive and well. It, it hasn't, you know. I I had thought during my era growing up that 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 word would be you know stamped out, and it's not. And uh, and it shows you. I'll, something. I'll I'll be honest with you, and this is one of those things where unfortunately this is something I have to talk about. Like I grew up again in white identity evangelical circles in a small rural town. When the doors were shut, the the word was there. I, you know, it was just it happened to be you said it like in your family and like people said it to each other when they felt comfortable with each other and even if you were like hey this is racist they'd be like oh i'm not a racist yada 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 right trump flew the door open that's the point is like what we're seeing now is a bunch of people who are not afraid to be racist and fascist and unfortunately if he got caught doing something like this yeah i i, I think the people who support him but as that happens as they become more concentrated they start shedding members and that's why the poll numbers are going down is because there's a group of people who are like, yeah, I thought maybe he was going to drain the swamp, but he's just he's just failed. He hasn't done anything he said he was going to do. Well, let's go back to the Nixon era in a moment, because what was so uh, politically troubling about the taxes thing was that a lot of people for those four years that worked as hard as they possibly can. Your family is like what I'm kind of talking about. Uh, they, they would discover they paid a lot more taxes than he did. And that was the political death that he was, you know, probably concerned about, which is why he paid it back. So that, I wonder what that would do. If, if, and we already know that he hasn't. He was able to deduct so much taxes. He didn't pay for, like, almost a decade uh, any tax, any income tax. So I really wonder if that is a tax that they could use to, to uh, uh, fix to Trump and take and, you know, slough off more of his followers if they're the ones who are grinding, grinding every day and they're, they have to pay these taxes and this asshole hasn't paid a dime in a decade that that I wonder what do you think would that hold any uh, well, sway? Well, I'm I'm glad we're talking about taxes because it just reminded me that I have six days to get mine in, and I'm going to take a bath in it. I just am, and it sucks. You know, like when you owe money for taxes, it sucks. It's like one of the worst feelings when you got to pay it over. Nobody likes paying taxes, and one of the problems actually is that the Republican Party has really done a great job of framing this thing. Right? Everyone hates taxes, so let's just say your taxes will go up. Yada yada yada. Everyone hates it. But I think the problem here, and this is actually, I think, where Democrats have failed and I think where media members and pundits have failed. Don't put a dollar number on it. Talk about schools. How many schools were not funded? How many infrastructure projects were not funded? How much health care could have been gotten to 
if people like Donald Trump weren't able to shirk their responsibility in terms of taxes. Because when you say the number, and the number doesn't mean anything, and, and as a result, you're like, oh, that's how much money he saved. Talk about the public uh, consequences. Talk about like what that actually does, and talk about how that's hurt communities. Because people like Donald Trump have hollowed out America. You know what I mean? They, they've yeah. really hurt everything. And I got a newsflash for you, Jared. Whatever you're going to be hit with on taxes this year, it's the lowest it's ever been. You're not going to pay any less taxes, really, than you had in the last, you know, in, in, you're looking at a 50-year period. This is, this is the golden sure. age. And you have these asshole rich people who still want to complain. And yet it doesn't matter. And here's the other thing is they'll, they'll quote the tax codes. They'll use the percentages that they're expected to pay. And then you know and I know and everybody knows they don't pay anywhere near that no. rate. And that's what's also galling. So they, you want to use this notion, but they know that they have all the loopholes in the world. That they, Okay, and how do they get those? Because they donate to, uh, to the uh, politicians, and the politicians enact the laws, which then give them more tax breaks. And then you've got to wonder why people think that the government is stacked against minorities and poor people. And there's your answer right there. They've rigged that part of the system so much that, uh, you know, we had, when I had Curtis Harris on, he talked about how, you know, what were some of the laws enacted that would have caused, you know, black people way back in the day to be so far behind that they never catch up. Well, one of them was they forced people to have to buy their wife from, from the slave owner and their kids. And it was so much money that that was it. That for the rest of their, that life and that generation of uh, going forward, they didn't have, they had no more money to save or anything else. And here we are, the same way here, and they're just giving the money back to these rich people. And it's it's time it, we need to do something to stop this once and for all. And it, it needs to be some punitive damage to this. And and what we're talking about in terms of how they have framed it actually gives these people um, a really really powerful weapon so like okay during reaganism which of course was like taxes are terrible or whatever we end up having this hyper capitalistic society where all of a sudden the, the very wealthy become increasingly and exorbitantly more wealthy right they just keep getting more and more money and the corporations keep getting larger and larger and eventually what ends up happening is you have like transnational corporations that aren't actually american you know, I mean, this is why they have like Cayman Islands offices, you know, and then the moment that we might actually try and make them pay taxes. Do you think that those companies will stay in this country? No, they'll threaten to leave and they'll take any jobs that they have with them and anything that they pay at all with them. So actually, you've created you've created a monster. You've created a situation where we can't make people pay taxes, where we can't make people chip in. And do you know what happens with that? We don't end up with health care. Our infrastructure and our educational systems fall apart. And then it's we're just stuck there. And unfortunately, that's the horror that we're in right now. Uh, Jared, I had no idea you hated Hamilton. <laughs> wow. I think it's a great musical. It's really, you know, really great numbers, really a lot of talent on that stage. But, uh, but man, you basically just destroyed his whole vision of our... Of our Alexander movie. Hamilton was pretty gross. I, I have not seen the musical. I, I hear it's very charming. But Alexander Hamilton was a real monster. And, and, I, and that's a hard thing to talk about. But I mean, like, that, that guy's fingerprints are on a lot of different things. And the idea of Adam Smith's, you know, wealth of nations and capitalism in terms of, like, self-interest, it's really brought us to a bad point. Oh, by the way, I don't know if you noticed, but coronavirus numbers are still going up. Not that that has anything to do with what we're talking about. Well, answer me this then, because how is it possible that we're now in a situation where these, these pundits and these politicians are saying, we have to reopen schools. 
And that's the only sentence. Nothing about we have to wait and see to see if the virus calms down, if we can do it safely. No mention of any of that. This simply has turned into we have to open up the economy to we have to reopen the schools. We don't give a shit of whether or not these kids are going to infect anybody or, or the, the teachers or any of the workers in the schools and then have it be a super spreader event from there. I, I, how, do any of the, how would any of these Republicans get reelected again on, with this kind of slogan that they're, they're pushing out there day after day now? I, I can't. I cannot follow that. What's the Trump slogan that they rolled out? Live with it. Isn't isn't that what they're saying now? It's live with I, it. Well, is, that's um, not real, is it? I thought that was kind of like a cheeky f- joke. Do they really are saying? I, I I don't think they're putting it up on banners, but I mean, I think that is become the, the 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 motto. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I always find it interesting that all of these reopening meetings are on Zoom. You know, the people making <laughs> right. the decision about whether or not kids should be in classrooms. Oh, wait, um, did you hear about this? Exactly they had all these uh, administrators meet to discuss how they opened this thing, and they all got COVID. Where was that? What state was that? Do you remember? Uh, I want to say that was in Texas, maybe. Yeah, or I'll look it up. Either way, I mean... Or it might have been California. I forget Yeah, I want to say it was almost California, but either way, um, it's insane. Yeah, but it is. And the problem here, and, and I've, I've been a, a very vocal person on this, the reason that we're arguing whether or not we should stay closed or reopen... It's a dichotomous choice. Like, we shouldn't have to have that argument. Of course we should be shut down right now. And the thing is, the wealthy and the powerful don't want to have a conversation about reforming economics in this country. Because the moment that that door opens, God knows where it leads, right? If people are going to be getting public assistance, or we're going to actually tax people, or we're going to, you know, redistribute some wealth and make it fairer and more human, there's no telling where that can end. So no, they don't want to have that conversation. They would much rather uh, sacrifice thousands of lives. Follow me on Twitter and you'll see I had tweeted this out a little while ago or today, all caps, defund the government. I am now, let's defund the police, let's defund the government. Let's just do the whole thing while we're at it. But, you know, he's already destroyed where we're at. I mean, I'm, that's where I'm at right now. Because, listen, we just talked about, Mnuchin says, to get back to taxes really briefly, he said it would be dangerous to honor this request for a tax return. What would be dangerous about anything like that that they do all the time as a routine unless it was completely nefariously done? And here we have, um, you know, people wanting to send the kids back to school, even if you want to uh, assume that the kids aren't going to get really sick and they're, for some, whatever reason, blessed because they don't get it. But it's all the teachers. I mean, what would you know about teaching, ki- uh, teaching people in a classroom, Jared? I, I have to tell you, I, I, I'll be real. I don't want to do it. I, 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 I don't. I, I don't feel safe. I haven't, I haven't been told anything in any way, shape, or form that makes me feel safe or like anybody is taking any of this seriously and actually considering it from a point, and we talked about this on the last podcast, that isn't based on how do we get football out there. These systems are messed up. This is not the way it's supposed to work. It's not the way uh, that higher education is supposed to work, which, by the way, that's where you <laughs> that's where you educate the future experts who believe in science and logic in facts. And instead, we're having a system now that is pretending like those things don't exist because the, the economy of it and the for-profit status of it has completely ruined any belief in all of it. So no, it's it's a really disturbing moment. And I don't think, and this, this brings it all back around to what we were saying. When you start taking those things away, the law, science, and facts, there is a domino effect. And you just get to the point where they don't matter anymore. And, and we, we've talked about this in depth. 
you eventually reach a point where there is no rule of law except for the people who want to use it as a weapon, right? For other people, right? That's what Donald Trump wants. He wants to use the law. I mean, there's a reason why he's talking about, you know, jailing people who burn a flag or jailing people who, like, knock down a statue. That The law is for them. It's not for him or any of his conspiratorial cronies. And then you reach a point where reality doesn't matter and you feel powerless and nothing can ever make it feel better, which is what we're talking about with this tax thing. The fact that we look at this, we know that it's important, but we also don't expect it to be the silver bullet. That's what Trump and people like him want, because they want to continue knocking down the rule of law and they want to, they want to fast forward corruption. I mean, that's that sounds horrible, but it's true. Well, the problem, I think, is, is that we've always it's always been this way. It just hasn't been pronounced. No one. It hasn't been in our face as much. Right. And I guess the argument is, is that the longer you behave this way in the shadows and keep this whatever, eventually it's going to come out and creep out. And then we see it. Right. We this was like this happening in the 40s, in the 20s and the, in the, you know, we've had this kind of ripe corruption across the board all the, the whole time. Maybe it's just a function of capitalism, but at some point and might be very quickly, then the whole thing can just fall apart. And we've never really seen a country like ours. Fall, we, we don't know in, in the, we don't have any past precedent to, to, of what it looks like when a country falls apart and the republic just dies. I mean, like ours, we've seen it where it becomes a dictatorship, but before that it probably wasn't necessarily a democratic republic. But um, this is really where you could point to, if you're you're looking back on this 100 years from now and say, you know, this is the point where enough people became completely aware of what the graft was. And you can argue that Trump wants it to be that way, to continue to destruct the norms. But as a result, he's taken everybody down with him. And that that could very well lead to something disastrous, uh, you know, sooner than later i don't know i'm hot today i didn't realize that wasn't so hot but geez i I think i think you have a reason to be hot because it's like stuff like this that should piss you off because what you just said is exactly right like i i feel like one of the problems in this country is that people believe that america is inherently stable and that nothing could ever happen here that could unseat that well guess what it can it absolutely can and it's happening right now that is why all of us are screaming out Four alarm fires, we're talking about this stuff, we're telling you what can happen and, and trying to explain what has happened. Because it, it, it's, it is a steep grade and eventually it just rolls and rolls and rolls and you don't even recognize it at the end of it. Don't you see why the, the, the value of studying our past and realizing why we shouldn't have Confederate uh, statues is so important now? I mean, really... If we don't, and we talked about this in the last podcast, if we don't reflect and analyze and see what the reality was back then and maybe pierce this notion that we had of what the, I, I don't think it's so stable. I don't think that the country has always been that stable. The, certainly the educational system has never been stable, right? It's always been, the public system has been a, a, a mess that piles on rule after regulation after uh, you know, different methods. And by the time you get to the top of this thing, they're all diametrically opposed to each other and it's almost gridlock for the whole thing. You can barely get anything. Almost almost like the tax structure. That's so weird that you say it like that. It's almost like the tax structure. It's almost like we are suffering because all of our institutions have just grown and grown and grown and grown and grown and grown and grown grown until they are pretty much nonsensical and they don't really serve anybody except for powerful and wealthy people. And that might not be anybody's fault. It might just be the notion of we've been around for a couple hundred years. You know, over time, these things continue to grow and get more complicated than this and that. And, you know, remember, we still have laws that, that outlawed sodomy, right? Uh, it, I don't know if we still have those. But we did very recently. Um, we, have, we have laws on the books right now that enable uh, forced sterilizations that are still left over from yeah. that time period. 
So, you know, it, you know, it, it comes across the board and everything we deal with. So that's the, why it's so important. And then you, and you have so many more people, I think, than I would have thought who want to either put their head in the sand or who want to celebrate these things, what they think that they really are uh, when they're not. And uh, as a result, we get stuck, you know, with, with, where, with, with a uh, non-functional government. Right. I, I suppose it, I bet you I can go back and we could see that people predicted this in the 70s and the 80s. Right. We would have seen that oh, well, at I some mean, point this two party system is going to ground to a halt. They're not getting anything done. Has anything been done? Have we even passed a law? Have we had any kind of substantive you know, uh, debate in the Congress about anything in the last, I don't know, six months? Oh, Aside from Nick. the impeachment? Nick, you think Congress was there to pass laws to help the people. That's really sweet, though. I, I, yeah. I really appreciate that. That's very nice. Well, I, I do have to say, and this is something that we've been talking about, and we've been kicking back and forth. There is somebody who predicted this, and that man's name was Jimmy Carter, and the country didn't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. The country just had no interest whatsoever in hearing it. And weirdly enough, I, I, I think you said it. Like, you know, we're, we live in a country where if everyone wore masks, things would be great, and they didn't want to wear a sweater for him. You know, it, it's, 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 a, it's a really crazy thing. Uh, But we're going to dive some more into history here in a few minutes. Uh, Hang around. We're going to have Kevin M. Levin, who is a historian and author of Searching for Black Confederates, the Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. We're going to talk about that history that Nick and I have been talking about here, Uh, hear Kevin's thoughts on that. So uh, hang around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. We're back with Kevin M. Levin, uh, who is a historian and author of Searching for Black Confederates, the Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. You already know that, though. Uh, doubtlessly, you follow him on Twitter. You already know this. This is a really exciting guest that we have on today's podcast. So I'm just going to jump into this thing right away. Uh, Kevin, you, you've you spent your career writing about things like the Confederacy, uh, jumping into the past. Um, I, I know as somebody who does research on, on history and writes about it, there's always a feeling that you hope that present day audiences find it relevant and find it to be something important that they will dive into. Uh, how, how's this moment treating you? Yeah, I, this is, uh, I mean, this is certainly, um, I've been here before, right? I've been writing about this, blogging about this subject uh, since 2005. So it's always been a topic that resonates with an audience, with a wide audience. And that's one of the things that makes it so interesting because it gives me a chance to really, I mean, I'm interested in the question of how Americans struggle to still come to terms with the legacy of the Civil War, Reconstruction. Um, So there's always an opportunity to sort of gauge that, right, depending on what's going on. And we saw that, uh, you know, in the aftermath of the Charleston shootings in 2015, we've obviously seen it again more recently um, after Charlottesville, where I used to live, and um, and obviously the last, you know, the last few weeks, and this feels different. Um, this is the. I'll be honest in saying that I'm still trying to wrap my head around uh, everything that is that is that that has happened um, from NASCAR to the president to the monuments themselves. Right? It's um, it's just happening so fast. That was like the weirdest Mad Libs I've ever heard. NASCAR, the president, and monuments. I just never expected to be here. What an odd time. Yeah, how did those get together? (laughs) Well, Tammy Duckworth got on to uh, Tucker Carlson's uh, shit list this week when she said that we need to have a conversation. That was all she said. She didn't say we need to tear down Washington statues. But uh, my question then was, well, do we have to have a conversation 
before we take the statue down. Is taking the statue down the conversation? And what exactly does that mean? And that's how are we a, supposed to proceed? That's a really, really good question. And it's a tough one to answer because I can come at this as, um, as, as a resident of a community, as a citizen, as a historian, and as an educator. And the educator slash historian in me you know, would like to see some reflection, right? I mean, you know, I, I you sometimes wonder what are what do people really know about the statues that they're ripping down, right? What's going through their what's going through their head? What did they learn uh, in high school and college, et cetera? Uh, those those questions are tough to answer. But um, at the same time, having studied this for so long and understanding the broader history of these monuments, and understanding just how long they've been divisive. Uh, this is nothing new. If you study the history of Confederate monuments, you understand and appreciate the extent to which many of them have been controversial from day one. So to see that that kind of frustration, penned up fr frustration for, for many, uh, now allowed to, um, to let loose, uh, I can understand it, right? Uh, there's a context there that I can... Uh, that I can use to understand what's happening, uh, not necessarily to outright celebrate. I mean, you know, uh, at the same, I mean, yeah, I was kind of happy when they removed the Nathan Bedford Forest uh, monument in Tennessee, although that was that the city took care of that. Um, you know, but it's, um, you know, it, it's one of those things where I, I'm not worried about the slippery slope, but, um, you know, I do wonder what people are thinking about when they're pulling these things down, right? It's uh, For me, it's, uh, it's a back and forth in terms of uh, my response. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a sort of weird conversation in that, sort of a symbolism. So like when people are pulling it down, it's like the, the, the energy of a crowd. And when a city suddenly decides to take all this down, you're like, oh, this might be yeah. systemic. Yeah, you know, I, I got into some trouble on social media, as I do from time to time, on Twitter when I when I suggested that I I actually prefer to see the cities take them down, right? Uh, in part because I worry that um, people pulling them down that it may not be seen as representative of the city. It's the cities and the communities that initially put them up, and I think as a as a symbolic moment. Uh, and also as a way to continue the conversation of what happens to these public spaces, I think a community is in a better place if the city does take it down as opposed to, um, you know, just the, the general public or a segment of that public. But again, at the same time, there is something quite powerful about that, you know, pulling down. Uh, you, you don't have to go any further than looking at those images of New Yorkers pulling down the equestrian monument of King George. Uh, after the Declaration of Independence was uh, read publicly for the first time. So there is something powerful about uh, that act that I, 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 I do want to acknowledge. Um, how nefarious do you think it was erecting a lot of these statues to the Confederacy across the board? I mean, people want to say it's their heritage uh, and they want to honor some sort of notion of the best parts of it. Uh, or was it a thing where they wanted to continue to um, further the ideology I think, you know, we have to keep in mind uh, that these monuments went up in stages, right? And I think that earliest stage after the Civil War, where most of the Confederate monuments that were dedicated were dedicated in, in cemeteries. And even in that case, I don't think you can divorce it entirely from the politics of Reconstruction, which is taking place at that point. 
I do think that we can acknowledge that this was much more about commemorating the dead. I think in our, I think we are much too quick in engaging in a kind of reductionist argument that you know we make the claim that all oh, these monuments are simply about race and white supremacy. And there's a certain amount of truth to that when we get to the next stage of monument building roughly between 1880 and 1930, that height of the Jim Crow era. But that earlier stage, I think we need to acknowledge, and I think we've lost sight of the extent to which uh, white Southerners uh, sort of were dealing with the trauma uh, of, de of defeat and just death, the scale of death and loss in many of these communities. Certainly by that later stage, um, I think we do need at some level uh, to acknowledge the ways in which these monuments reflected the extent to which white Southerners had regained control of their state and local governments, right? In other words, I see these monuments as, as much, if not more, a response to Reconstruction as they were to the Civil War itself. In other words, coming out of Reconstruction, ensuring that milita military occupation, federal intrusion into the, um, you know, the... Um, the racial hierarchy of the South never occurs again. And so I think we do have to acknowledge the extent to which the soldier statues, the larger monuments in places like Richmond and other large cities are an attempt to remind white Southerners of what their fathers and grandfathers fought for in the 1860s and what they have a responsibility of maintaining and upholding once white supremacy has regained control that they have a responsibility to ensure that that continues into the 20th century. Uh, those monuments and memorials are as much about children and educating a younger generation that didn't remember or didn't live through the Civil War and Reconstruction as they are in honoring the uh, Confederate veterans themselves. So there's a lot going on, and a lot of it, of course, depends on local communities uh, and the dynamics in those communities. But certainly, I think we can we can make some broader kinds of generalizations about how to understand those monuments during that. I'm so, gl I'm so glad that you brought up the generations of the monuments because what you're talking about, the memorials to the soldiers versus what happens during the lost cause mythology age is, and that's all of a sudden where you have the leaders and the generals and the sort of more elite of the South. That is also kind of that flattening out of history where I, I think most people don't understand that the Confederacy was very much an aristocracy and mm -hmm. that you had a lot of young men who weren't necessarily slaveholders, who might not have even believed in the Confederacy, who were either conscripted or forced into battle. And so yeah. then you start to flatten out the history of the Confederacy. Yeah. Oh, there's, there's that's a really good point and an important point. Um, you, you know, the monuments are, people talk about uh, the, the way in which uh, you're pulling down uh, monuments, some people worry, is a uh, tantamount to erasing history. But I think we need to appreciate the extent to which the monuments themselves uh, both erased and mythologized uh, the history of the Civil War and Reconstruction, both the soldier statues and the larger memorials, both in terms of, as you've just alluded to, um, you know, sort of stamping out the idea of, of unionists uh, in, in parts of the South, uh, obviously ignoring the extent to which African-Americans, enslaved men, uh, fought for the Union or, or just simply did not support uh, the Confederacy. Uh, so these, these monuments have a great deal of power. Uh, but I would also say that the soldier statues themselves also have to be connected to that 
uh, broader project of, of sort of uniting white Southerners uh, in that Jim Crow era. I mean, we can, you know, as I go through a lot of the dedication speeches right now, even with the, the soldier statues, uh, you know, the most famous example, the best example is, of course, Julian Carr's address in 1913 at the dedication of Silent Sam, which once stood on the campus of the University of North Carolina. And of course, he's in 1913 talking and reflecting back on coming back from the war in 1865 and seeing a woman, a black woman, disrespecting another white person uh, and describing how he, quote unquote, horsewhipped her until she was bleeding. So the way in which, um, you know, white Southerners during this latter period um, used these monuments as an opportunity to unite the, the community is incredibly powerful. Uh, and I think helps to explain a great deal of why that lost cause narrative uh, has remained so deeply embedded in our culture. I mean, even to this day, even as much as we've sort of we're beginning to move past it, I think the removal of monuments is a reflection of that. But it's still there in various ways. Is it? I mean, it's safe to say that uh, a lot of the um, the bad kind of behavior and ideology that we saw in the South before the Civil War. It kind of still exists, right? I mean, I don't want to be too, um, uh, you know, make broad assumptions about a huge swath of the country, but it seems like the fact that it remains at all indicates the deep influence that something had in the South, right? And something had that continues these ideas, and we keep seeing them pop up. So I'm kind of wondering if you had a, a feeling of what, like, what has been able to propagate that. We talk about progress all the time and how we, the country is supposedly trying to keep moving away. But here we are so long from the Civil War and so long from Jim, Jim Crow, and yet yeah. we just seem to still, to this day, have these issues. And yeah. what, what's propagating it? A lot of that has to do with education, but I don't mean sort of in the, in the way in which we're blaming teachers in the last few decades for everything. I mean, you know, going back to uh, the role that the United Daughters of the Confederacy played, uh, you know, beginning in the 1890s and stretching into the 20th century, where we think, I think, typically, um, you know, the, the UDC is connected to the monuments, right? That's where we're, we're, we're hearing them uh, for the most part. In fact, uh, on the first night of protests in Richmond, uh, it wasn't just the monuments that the uh, protesters went after. Uh, they set fire to the headquarters of the United Daughters of the Confederacy in downtown Richmond. Um, but their most important project was not the monuments, one could argue. It was actually on the front lines of controlling textbooks in schools throughout the South and beyond. So their, their primary concern and, you know, they were actually quite successful. And I think this gets to your, your the point that you're making. They were actually quite successful for years in controlling uh, and approving textbooks at various levels uh, in public schools uh, throughout the South. And you can imagine, of course, the kinds of concerns they had, uh, how the, you know, what, what kids learned about what the Confederacy was fighting for, how to think about Abraham Lincoln, um, how to think about the relationship between uh, slave and master. And, you know, those textbooks, those lost cause influenced textbooks, and then add to that, in the 1960s, there's a push to, as a part of massive resistance in states like Virginia, to publish textbooks that counter the civil rights movement. These books are used uh, into the late 1970s in some places, right? Um, and so I think it's important sometimes to acknowledge you know, that the generation of students that I started teaching 
and this is going back now 20 years, right? Um, the, the, the idea that they would learn that slavery was central to the war, that slavery caused secession, um, that slavery was not benign, right? That Reconstruction was not simply the, the federal government moving in and, and corruption and all of that, that there was a great deal of progress for African-Americans, even white Southerners. That narrative is so recent, right? It doesn't go back, you don't have to go back that far to, to find students learning from those old textbooks, that old, um, that old narrative. And I think, you know, we, we, we need some perspective on that uh, because it is, it is fairly new. And it's going to take some time, I think, to fully get beyond it, right? I mean, younger generations get it. And I think that's one of the reasons why this push against Confederate monuments, who's taking the lead? It's young, it's young kids, right? There's something to that. Yeah, one of the reasons we started this podcast in the first place is because I think when you look at modern times, but you don't understand history, they seem inexplicable. They seem very puzzling because... The, the history that we've been taught mostly is a mythology. It's sort of a flattening out of American history. And so I always like joke about it, but basically the, the Civil War boils down to Abraham Lincoln was a savior and Robert E. Lee looked good on a horse, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and, yeah. and so we don't really talk about why the Civil War, like what were the causes that led to it and what the Confederacy actually was and, and Reconstruction, because not only does it look terrible for America, but it also looks badly for how America was founded and, and, and how it conducted itself. What do you feel like are the, the, the main missing pieces of information that people don't have that keep yeah. them from understanding not just the Civil War, but the consequences that we're still living with? I, I, I think that's a great question. And, you know, I answer that question every year in my survey class in American history by spending a good deal of time on Reconstruction. Uh, right. I think, you know, right now, if, if we were really to sort of dig into, you know, the, the racial problems that we're facing in 2020, we're talking about reconstruction, right? That's yep. where those problems stem from. Uh, I also think, and, you know, this is something that I don't mind admitting that I was relatively late, you know, coming on board with, and that is the recent scholarly work that situates the Civil War into the broader westward expansion, right? Into right. the broader uh, sort of imperialist push west, uh, and of course, connecting that to imperialism overseas. Right. Um, that I think is, I mean, you know, your typical history class, we have no problem sort of looking at the debates over expansion into the territories and this question of whether the Western territories will be free or enslaved, right? That That's standard history 101. And then we get to the Civil War, and then somehow we forget about it on the flip side, right? We're, yep. we're into the Gilded Age, right? We're, I mean, we're yep. still talking about the West, but we're not talking about it in the same way. And I think historians, uh, a number of historians, are have really sort of pushed back on that in recent years. And so I think that's another piece that helps us understand, um, you know, sort of the broader sweep of American history that situates the Civil War in that broader 19th century uh, expansion. Uh, and, and I think that those two things, um, for me, are paramount in understanding the 19th century as a way of bridging to the present. I'll, I'll just say real fast, I thought I knew American history, you know, I took my fair share of classes. But the problem I found, I, I was doing research on, on my recent book, and I realized I didn't actually know history, that there were a ton of historians that I had not been introduced to. 
And there's there is an academic consensus of all of these things that you don't get in public schools. And maybe with like your quick survey in college, there's not enough time to put all of it. Because like you just said, what I'm learning about Western expansion and the Confederacy basically surviving. I mean, that's its own course. I mean, that that is, you know, that's its own semester's worth of work. That's right. And what that means for for Native Americans out West, what it means for just people of color generally, um, you know, all of that is important. Right. Um, And and I I couldn't help but think that um, I'm sort of in the same camp uh, as you. And, you know, in terms of, um, yeah, I teach this stuff, but I'm constantly, you know, trying to stay up on um, on interpretations and scholarship. Uh, although I'm a high school history teacher. And I mean, one of the things I've found that has been just so incredibly helpful is just social media, right? I mean, a lot of these historians are just doing really good public outreach uh, on places like Twitter and, and elsewhere. And so what I found actually in the last 10 years is that I think I am actually much uh, much more in tuned with sort of changes in the scholarship because there are so many more people actually engaging the public Right. So, I mean, I use it to sort of promote my own work on, on, on social media. But, man, um, it's in terms of just as an education, sort of getting to some of the points you're raising. For me, it's just so it's just invaluable. You know, that brings up a point. Yesterday I was on social media on Twitter looking at some feeds and somebody had made a great point about the difference between the, the Confederate battle flag yeah. And the Confederate flag, the which is what everybody wants to embrace, the, the battle flag. And then first of all, the question was, well, does the U.S. have a battle flag, too? I don't right. know. But, but, like, can you give us a little insight into the difference between that and what that actually – what they're embracing so, then? Yeah, so it's a little bit complicated. And I guess this is back in the news because of the state of Mississippi last week making that decision to, uh, to lower and, and, uh, and revise their state flag. But, you know, in 1861, the Confederacy adopts what they call the first national flag – which, if you look at it, looks a lot like the Stars and Stripes. And that ends up being the flag that regiments will use on some of those earliest battlefields, like Bull Run in July of 1861. But it was confusing for the soldiers on both sides, which is my side, right? You know, because they both look alike. And so within a few months, some of the regiments in Virginia, uh, or the Army, what becomes the Army of Virginia, adopt this St. Andrew's cross pattern, that square flag the battle flag, as we call it. And by the middle of the war, that St. Andrew's cross gets adopted to a new national flag. You can see it in the far, it's a white field. And in the corner uh, is the battle flag symbol. So the battle flag by the middle of the war becomes part of the Confederate national flag. And by the end of the war, there's a third national flag. And what they do is they add a red stripe on the corner the opposite corner of um, of the flag, and so you still have the the St. Andrew's cross there, but you also have this right uh, this red stripe. So the two sort of meld together, right? And it's important because some people will try to make this distinction that the Confederate battle flag was always the soldier's flag; that it was never the the, the flag of the Confederacy. Uh, but that's just simply not true. If you look at, again, those second and third national flags, you can see that pattern. And it speaks to the extent to which uh, that Lee's army, Robert E. Lee's army specifically, by the middle of the war, really had become the, the, the symbol of nationalism for the Confederacy, much like George Washington was during the Revolution. He had become 
even more so than Jefferson Davis, because he was just so unpopular uh, by the end of the war, that Lee becomes, in his army, because it's so successful, uh, becomes sort of the the best hope for the Confederacy, that symbol of nationalism. Can you can you maybe draw a comparison that we can also understand? Like, what would that be like now of us wanting to, you know, is there is there a comparison we can use that's a little bit more recent? I don't know. A comparison of... Like, what's the equivalent of that kind of flag, uh, you know, want to celebrate that flag? You know, is it like ice, an ISIS flag or like, you know? Oh, I, I, well, I guess it depends who you ask, right? I mean, right. certainly, I mean, if you mean the battle flag. Um, yeah, the General yeah, I mean, Lee, what we call a General Lee or whatever. The yeah, flag. I mean, that flag in various shapes, um, you know, by the, by the mid-20th century, if not sooner. I mean, look, I think it's always important to remember that the battle flag is connected to the issue of slavery from, from the beginning. The armies function as the military arm of a government committed to protecting and expanding slavery. Uh, but certainly by the mid 20th century, the best examples are that flag, that battle flag becomes a fairly popular symbol of massive resistance in the 1950s and 60s. So white kids uh, who are reading from those textbooks, right, that we talked about a few minutes ago, you know, they are standing in those along those highways, um, you know, sort of responding to African-Americans with that flag. The Dixiecrats in 1948, that is also their symbol. That's their party symbol. Um, so it, I think it reminds us that, you know, white Southerners have always understood the connection between that flag and the importance of white supremacy. Uh, there's, there's no, there's, there shouldn't be any surprise by that um, in 1950 or in 2020, if of course you you understand a little bit of that history. I, I hope that gets at your question. Um, Absolutely, thank you. Okay, good, good, good. So before I ask Kevin uh, my last question, I just want to go ahead and let people know that we do have a YouTube video component, and they should check it out because as Kevin is holding a master class, his beautiful cat has just been rampaging around in the background and it has been I think that's the sorry about it, that. it just it just no it just brings it up to another level Kevin it is wonderful um so last question I have for you um I, I think you're exactly right about the not just the invigoration of like social media creating new avenues for education and and we obviously have a generation that not only rejects the old mythology but they they want truth like they really desperately want truth. Yeah. As a historian who, I have to imagine that, I mean, like, as a historian, you butted heads with a mythology in this country. Yeah. And you've, you've had to do battle with this sort of, like, um, a consensus that I, I feel like has done a lot of harm and has also hidden white supremacy in our laws and culture and politics. How do you, do you feel hopeful? Do you feel like there is a tide is changing? Or, or how, how are you feeling yeah. right now? So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's a good I mean, as an educator, as a high school teacher, I have to be optimistic, right? And I and I, I think I have every reason to be optimistic, um, you know, given the students that I've been teaching over the over the past uh, number of years. Um, and and certainly, you know, I've had I save all my emails. I, I have an archive going back 15 years of some of the most hate-filled emails, death threats that you can possibly imagine. I've seen it all, right? And I think it's easy to. Um, to sort of, um, you know, it's easy just to sort of focus on that, right? Because um, that's what people want to hear about anyway, right? I mean, tell me about the people who are threatening you and everything. But actually, I think what stands out most to me are the number of people that I've come into contact over the years 
as you said, who really do want to learn. I think there's actually a voracious appetite out there um, for good history, history that not only offers some complexity of the past, right, but also helps to make meaningful what's happening right now. And I think, you know, if you can do that, if you can do both of those things, if you can both acknowledge the complexity, force people to step back and say, look, maybe not so fast on your generalizations, but let's dig into this a little bit, but still have it relevant or make it relevant to what's happening right now. That's incredibly powerful. And I think that's the reason why we do engage in the past or the serious study of the past. At least it's, at least it's the reason why I do it. Well, that thank you so much. Um, I guess you want, you want me to take it away, Jared? Is that what you're saying? Well, uh, no, I, I thought I, no. That that answer is way too good. I was sort of you know blown away by it. Uh, just we've been talking with Kevin M. Levin, uh, historian and author of Searching for Black Confederates: The Civil War's Most Persistent Myth, um, an absolutely must-read book. I, I, I think it's really well written, and, uh, and I think it's a must-read. So thank you so much for coming on with us. Where if people already follow you on Twitter, but where would they find you? Yeah, so at Kevin Levin. At Kevin Levin, follow him. Uh, it, it, do you have anything in the pipeline? Anything you'd like to, to bring uh, up? No, I, I am working, like I said uh, before, working on a sort of a collection of documents to help people understand uh, the history of Confederate monuments. Awesome. I can't wait to read that. Thank you so much, Kevin Levin. Well, what a terrific conversation, and really, uh, I'm really glad that we could hit some of the really important notes about uh, what the statues mean, what the flag means, and that, that was a great point he made about the difference between the battle flag and what it really means. And so I just don't think that Southerners can hide behind anything else uh, that, that that flag stands for besides white supremacy. I mean, it's a complete myth that, you know, the Confederacy was anything else. I mean, I, you know, you can you can make arguments about state rights, but it's state rights in, in the pursuit of power and white supremacy. I mean, they, they said as much. Uh, yeah, that was great. I was so happy. I was so excited about getting Kevin for the, the podcast. And I think he is a really, really interesting uh, historian. You, you should absolutely check out his book, Black Confederates. Uh, in the meantime, uh, thank you so much for hanging out with us again. Uh, we are still absolutely touched and excited about the growing support that we have here. It means so much. If you want to help us out, please just rate, subscribe, like, share, tell people about this podcast. We are growing and we appreciate your help in that. If uh, you'd like to check in with Nick before next week, he's at Can You Hear Me SMH. I am at JY Sexton. We'll be back next week. Stay safe, everyone.